I would love to tell you that I was the most obedient, wonderful son that ever walked the face of this earth. But I've already told too many stories about myself, so that, that's not going to work. Um, I remember an occasion, I was about 11 years old, 10, 10, 11 years old. Um, I got caught and I didn't know that I got caught. I was involved in some shenanigans with the local neighbor boys and on that particular block almost all of us were Air Force brats. And uh, we were out doing stuff, and it, I mean, we weren't robbing banks, or you know, we were doing you know typical ten, eleven year old stuff, but stuff I wasn't allowed to do. And uh, when I made my way home, my father was waiting for me, and he looked me in the eye and told me to sit down, which that alone made me nervous. So I sat down, and he looked at me and said, "Danny, what did you do?" And I immediately fell back into my number one defense whenever I got caught. I lied. I came up with an explanation of what I was doing because, you know, I wanted, him, I wanted it to be plausible. I wanted it to be defensible and all that stuff. And I got through and he looked at me and said, Danny, what did you do? And so I embellished the lie. I, I didn't back off and say, no, no, I'm sorry, Father, I did wrong. I, I just gave more detail to the lie. And I thought the more detail, the more real it sounded. And, and I was convinced. And then he looked at me for a third time and said, Danny, what did you do? And, and given that third, you know, that proverbial third strike, I came clean. No, I lied more. And I even added more. To the lie, and it was just built, and it was it was so logical. It was actually one of my lies that actually made sense. Then he looked at me and he said, "Danny, I saw you," and immediately I hit the floor, crying and weeping, saying, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry," and I was so pitiful, you know. If it had been mom, it would have worked. Uh, but it didn't. And I'm crying. And, and my dad looked at me and he said, well, I forgive you. And this just bright light started to shine. He forgave me. And then he took me to my room and I will let the rest of it be in your imagination. It was a painful experience for me. I'll put it that way. A very painful experience, even though he said he forgave me. What does that have to do with us? Well, we're going to find out. In Genesis 21, verses 8 through 21. It is a lengthy passage, but it's a very important one. And I think, I believe it may be one of the most painful moments in Abraham's story. So I'd ask you to stand as we hear the word of God today. Last week we ended with such a grand note of hope and life and joy. And then we get to today's text. The child grew and was weaned and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. Still sounds wonderful. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, 
get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy to a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This is the story of a painful separation, and we need to understand that. We need to understand that what is happening in today's text tore at the very heart of Abraham. It was not easy. It was not what he wanted to hear. And it is not the same. You may recall if you were here when we looked at the 16th chapter that Sarah had also said that Hagar's got to go. And God responded a very different way. But here we have this situation. And in the text, what we need to understand is the same message I needed to understand when my dad said, Danny, I saw you. In Abraham's case, the consequences of failing to trust God can cause great pain. The consequences of my actions brought pain to me. I believed my dad later. I didn't at the moment. I believed my dad later when he said he had forgiven me. But I still had to face the consequence. And when I look at this text, there's a question that sometimes, we may not ever actually articulate it, but somewhere back in the back of our minds, we kind of feel this way. Why doesn't forgiveness take care of the consequences of sin? If God forgives us, and as the scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, so God, far as he removed our sin from us, that he blots out our sin, that he lifts it off of us. Why are we faced with painful consequences? 
As we look at the text, we'll discover the reasons. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. Other things can happen. But when we fail in our walk with God, when we fail to trust Him, when we fail to leave ourselves in His hands and follow His path, consequences come. Rarely does God both forgive and take the consequence away. So let's take a look at what was going on in our text. The very first reason failure to trust God can lead to a to lack of reverence for God's plan. When we fail to trust God, when we fail to live according to His will, we will actually engender in other people a disrespect or an irreverence toward God. Look at the text. When we see this, we get a glimpse into Ishmael. The only real glimpse we get into this boy. Now, I will keep in mind, the, the scriptures calling him a boy, but he's about 17 years of age at this time. Depending on when Isaac was weaned, uh, and normally it would have been around three, maybe four, and he might even have been weaned earlier because of Sarah's age. But Ishmael was about 13 when Isaac is born, so he may be as old as 17. And when we see what is happening here, the text revealed Ishmael's intent against Isaac as the promised, promised one of God. Now, there could be any number of reasons. He was the eldest born in, in that culture of, of just the Near East. The oldest was given a great deal of the inheritance. I used to kid my sisters growing up. Once I learned the term primogenitor in school, I said, okay, by the laws of primogeniture, I get everything. Because according to the laws of primogeniture in, in the, the culture in which our, our culture was born, the eldest son got all of the inheritance. And I would say, I'm going to get everything and I'll be, I'll be nice to you. And of course, we're not living under the laws of primogeniture. My sisters forcefully in, let me know that. The discord, it may seem trivial. We hear Sarah saw Ishmael mocking Isaac. How many of you have been teenagers? How many of you, as teenagers, ever mocked somebody in kind of a joking way? I'm going to assume the same number of folks as adults. It doesn't sound that bad. It's a teenage brother making fun of his little half-brother. But there is a fundamental rift that is happening here. And it's disclosed both in the Scriptures and in the New Testament. Isaac and Ishmael, by the very way they were conceived and born, would never have the kind of relationship brothers should have. Just think about some of the other relationships of half-brothers. And what the, remember this guy named Joseph and his half-brothers? Now, I do not... Joseph brought some of it on himself. He, got, he had visions that God had given him. But there's nothing in the text that said, hey, Joseph, go tell your brothers what you had a vision about. 
Because it's basically, I'm first. And ultimately, they beat him. They strip him of the coat his father gave him. They throw him in a pit, cover the coat in blood, take it back home to dad, say he's dead, and then sell him into slavery. It's a situation that was difficult at best. Now, what actually occurred, we aren't completely sure of because of the language. The the term that is translated mocking can mean simply plain. In fact, the New Revised Standard Version said that she saw Ishmael playing with Isaac. And that is no big deal. Sometimes, in a particular form, all it means is having a good, fun time. But in the form that is used in this text, the verb describes everything from sexual caressing to entertainment to celebration to a contest in battle and scorn. Just downright hatred. So, it's kind of, we don't, are given the exact expression of it. But, the word as it is used almost always has a harmful nuance to it. And Sarah's reaction suggest big brother isn't just playing with his little brother. Something else is going on. Exactly what Sarah witnessed is unstated. But Ishmael is mocking his brother and very probably publicly putting down his brother in the midst of this celebration. The Apostle Paul, if you were with us when we looked in Galatians, Galatians 4.29, Paul just says, this son of the flesh persecuted the son of the Spirit. So even by the inspiration of the Spirit, we understand this isn't just a little teasing. Ishmael is showing contempt for his brother. And in essence, to the God who proclaimed this brother is the son of promise. Now, none of us will ever be in the situation that Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac were in. It's very specific. But we need to understand something today. When those who trust God cease to trust Him, in other words, when we quit living the way God wants us to live, the world feels free to ridicule our faith. There's a lot of stuff going on, and you, in the video you heard there have been a lot of attacks on religious freedom, and there is a pushback, there's no, no denial about that. But we need to understand something very important. Sometimes, by the way we live our lives, we create our own Ishmael. By the way we live out in the world, this faith that we say we have, if we're not truly following God, we are giving people in the world ammunition. And some of what we face is not because of our godliness. Some of it, what we face in this world, 
is because we are not living up to what we say we believe. And it happens. Only by trusting God can we actually live this Christian life. You are a great bunch of people. I love you. I'm so glad God brought us together. But folks, nobody in this congregation does this perfectly. No one in this congregation is without fault at some area in their life, myself included. And if I'm going to follow God, I must learn to trust Him. I must learn to yield myself to Him. I must open myself to all that He's doing. When we fail to trust, we devolve. When we fail to trust, we ultimately will become Pharisees who are essentially telling the world, don't do as I do, do as I say. And we bring condemnation on the world of sin and we expect lost people to act like they're not. And we show them a side to us that is not particularly giving grace to God. And so spiritual Ishmaels are born all around us. When we fail to live the life we claim is ours, the world looks on and ridicules belief in God. It's something that has no bearing on them. It has no meaning for them. It has no meaning for the people who say they have faith. They act just like we do. And folks, I wish I could say every time someone says that, it is just an excuse and it's a lie. But I've been doing this long enough and I've looked myself in the mirror long enough that I know there are times we don't live the life God has called us to live. And when we don't, consequences grow. And part of that is the world won't want to hear what we have to say. Because our life of faith, lack of faith, is causing us to not live the life God wants us to live. And so only by actually living our faith can the credibility of that faith be seen. I share with the disciple group on, on Sunday, Monday night. There is a hunger for spirituality. There is a hunger for something real in this land. People are wanting something that will give their life meaning. And if they look at us and we're not showing that in our own lives, why would they listen? They want something, but the world is looking in all the wrong places. It's like a, a, a friend I had back in Texas that was in one bad relationship after another and he couldn't understand it. And I share with him, well, well, think about the way you're entering into those relationships. Think about what you're looking for and why are you surprised when you keep going into the same relationship over and over again that you know as a child of God he didn't want for you. Well, folks, when we stand up for the truth, when we start living it. And I'm not saying perfectly. I think the world can understand people mess up. It's when we're high on the pedestal looking down on them and condemning their mess ups and not admitting our own that we lack credibility in our witness. When we stand and we demonstrate our lives for our, through our faith, the life that God wants for us, then we can show them the truth that sets them free. So why doesn't God say, okay, you're forgiven, that's it? 
Because folks, when we fail to trust God, when we go our own way, when we live according to what we want, we will ultimately bring disrespect and dishonor to His name. It's not just about us, folks. We're dragging our Father's name through the mud. Our second reason. Failure to trust God can lead to harsh responses by the unfaithful. When I use the word unfaithful here, I'm not talking about a lost Canaanite pagan world. When we fail to trust God, we can see some harsh responses. And the harsh response we see in this text belongs to whom? Isaac's mom, who finally trusted that she was in fact going to give birth. And Sarah's desire to protect her son led her to condemn Hagar's son. When she sees whatever she saw Ishmael do to Isaac, she reacted quickly and she reacted harshly. And the form of what she said is no way to be interpreted any way differently than a command. She looks at Abraham, her husband, who is supposed to be the head of the, the, the family group, and says, get rid of her. And that word, get rid, is a word that is used during times of eviction. It's the word that is used when Adam is expelled from the garden. It's a word that is used when Cain is expelled from the people through which he was growing up. It's a word when Pharaoh dismissed Moses and and evicted him from the palace. I don't want to hear any more. It was the word that is used to describe when Israel comes into Canaan and evicts the Canaanites, or is meant to overcome the Canaanites. All of these are harsh statements. Furthermore, to show where her heart is, one more time, she completely depersonalizes Hagar, doesn't she? Get rid of that slave woman's kid. That slave woman. (laughs) And what interested me the most in this encounter, and in the first encounter where she wanted to get rid of Hagar, she doesn't see any of her responsibility, does she? She is completely oblivious that this situation happened Because there was a moment in time she looked at Abraham and said, I have a way to fix our problem. Take my slave girl, Hagar, and have a son with her. She doesn't even acknowledge. Had she not come up with that fix, Ishmael would never have been born. They wouldn't be going through this at this moment in time. If she had trusted God, if Abraham had trusted God at that moment, this wouldn't have happened. And Sarah fails to see her own actions as leading to this major development, which often happens with us. We fail to see how our sinfulness causes the consequences of what we deal with. But I want you to note, in the midst of this, God looks at these outcasts differently, doesn't he? He still is going to show grace to Hagar and Ishmael. 
Now the reality is some of the harsh attitudes people of faith exhibit toward this world may stem from our own mistrust of God's abilities. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here now because we probably have all said this point, one point because we're supposed to be. If nothing else in Sunday school, I love everyone. And we say that very easily. But when we look at the way we behave, our actions often speak louder than our words, don't we? Do we really love everyone? What about those people who stand against us? What about those people who are pushing back on our faith? Whether it is a a school board or a city council or whatever. Or our next door neighbor who mocks us every time we mention Jesus. How do we look at that? How do we deal with them? How do we look at those who do not live according to God's plan? And have we ever come to the place of saying, they finally got theirs? Folks, when Jesus said, pray for your enemies, I've told you this before, he did not mean to pray, God get them. Sick them. Like James and John, when the world pushes us, when the world rejects our Jesus, we're just about ready to call down fire from heaven. Every major earthquake, every major hurricane, every major catastrophic event in history, in my lifetime, I've had people come to me as a preacher and say, why did God do that? And there were people preaching. When Katrina hit, there were well-known preachers who were standing up and saying, Katrina is the result of the decadence festival in New Orleans. God is judging New Orleans. And my response was, God's aim was off. There were bars that did not close down during Katrina. I saw a sign Plywood, painted on plywood. We will not die sober. And Bourbon Street wasn't touched. The Ninth Ward was. The place where most of the people in New Orleans who lived, who could not afford the insurance that would help them rebuild. The Mississippi Gulf Coast was hit. Of course, I've heard some of the same preachers. Well, it was because of the gambling industry. Folks, It happened because we are in a world that is marked by sin. And there are catastrophic events that can be traced to the fall, but not every bad thing that happens is God saying, okay, now this is it. I'm not suggesting when bad things happen, they're not. And we should all do soul searching. But folks, it's like calling down from fire from heaven. And if we're not careful, again, we are wearing the mantle of the Pharisees. We are told what we are supposed to do toward our enemies, aren't we? I've already mentioned Jesus said we are to pray for our enemies. What else did Jesus say we are to do for our enemies? Love them. Folks, I understand anger. I understand fear. And I understand the desire to Overcome those people out there. I understand that. But folks, when I gave my life to Christ, 
I gave up my right to jealousy, anger, hatred, vindictiveness. So that part of me that doesn't want to turn the other cheek, still hears Jesus say, turn the other cheek. For us to love our enemies entails our trust in the Father. Because it is only as we walk in faith that I can learn to love the unlovable. Because when I walk in faith, I remember God loved me when I was still a sinner. God loved me in spite of all the failures of my life from that moment I became a child of God. God loved me when I didn't deserve it and He's telling me, you need to love them when they don't. And that's only going to be happening as we trust God. As we learn to leave the wicked in God's hands. Vengeance is mine, I shall repay, says the Lord. Okay, Lord, I don't know how to, what's going to happen here. I'm leaving them in your hands and I'm asking you, teach me to love the people that my heart cries out I don't want to love. I always have to remind myself, what would my life be if God's love for me was dependent on how well I behaved? And I thank God that it does not. Our final reason, consequences follow us. Failure to trust God inevitably leads to pain within Whenever we fail to trust God, whenever we fail to yield our lives to Him, it is going to cause us pain. It is going to cause us distress. The NIV translates this, that this distressed Abraham. Folks, Abraham was crushed by Sarah's cruelty, which was connected with his own failure to trust God. Again, had they not decided to fix God's problem by having a child through Hagar, none of this would have happened. And now Abraham is crushed. I can't imagine what he, his first reaction when God says, This time, do what she tells you. In chapter 16, Sarah appealed to Abraham to send Hagar away, and he gave her freedom to act. Here, she's demanding that he sends her away. And it was harsh. And no doubt, Abraham struggles because at this moment, it sounds like God has taken Sarah's side. One of the most interesting things that happens in marriage counseling is when both parties think that the counselor is favoring the other. Now, I will, I will, I will be honest. There have been times I have very definitely within my own mind thought, okay, the bulk of the problem is here. But I've already... I've already told you, I've got a good poker face, so I don't show that. And I probe both people and all that kind of stuff. What are you doing and what can you do to make it better? Well, God says, do what 
she tells you to do. Stuart Briscoe points out something very unusual about this text. In the Old Testament, God is usually on the side of the exploited. This time, however, God is actually saying, do what she says. But it's not just because God has suddenly decided to back the wrong horse. Briscoe points out God is preparing Abraham. If you've been reading ahead or you know his story well, the 22nd chapter represents the greatest test of Abraham's faith of all. Take your son, your only son Isaac, and sacrifice him for me. And Briscoe believes that God was using this event, not that he caused it, it all falls back on Abraham and Sarah's bad decisions, but he takes it and he prepares Abraham for the test. If Ishmael had still been in the picture, an option for an heir for Abraham, the call to sacrifice Isaac may not have seemed so severe because now the call to sacrifice Isaac is sacrifice your dream and your understanding. He might have been able to say, but I still have Ishmael. So Abraham gives Hagar some supplies. And it seems meager. He gives her some food and and a bottle of water and puts it on her shoulder Folks, the reality is, that's all she could carry. She gave, he gave them the supplies that they could have. He sends them out. A broken-hearted man sends them out. And I believe he was broken-hearted because he loved Ishmael. He was his son. And now he's having to let him go. And Paul explains in Galatians chapter 4 that the the son of the flesh and the son of the spirit inevitably had to be separated. We must not lose sight of the truth. As crushed as Abraham is, God graciously says, don't worry about him. I'm going to take care of him. And God kept his word. When... The water's done. And Hagar helps Ishmael lie under a bush and goes off away. It looks like it's over with. And she's crying. She has no hope. But please notice, the text says, it is a cry of the boy that God hears and responds to. And God gives him the help. The water's gone, and he opens her eyes. Isn't that an amazing statement? And I don't know all the drama and the effect of what was going on there, but she, she, she's, her water bottle's empty now, and they're going to die because you're in a desert and you don't survive without water. But in her panic, in her fear, she doesn't see a well, and God says, look, it's right here. I've got this for you and I'm going to provide for you. And I'm going to be with your son. And I'm going to make him into a mighty man. And he provides the way. Just like he promised Abraham he would. 
And so, Ishmael's story is drawn to a close for us in about the most painful way it could. I can't imagine being a father and sending my child away and knowing I would never see them again. But God says, I will take care of him. Folks, when children of God refuse to trust him, it always leads to a breakdown of our relationship with him. Always. Sometimes in a very dramatic way. Sometimes in ways we may not be able to put our finger on really quickly. But what, when what we want gets in the way of the relationship we need, there's a rift growing. Not between God and us. God never stops loving us. But we find it harder and harder to believe that He does. Because as children of the living God, when we walk away from our Father, we don't love ourselves so much. And the guilt and the, the pain comes. Our lack of faith even our sin does not affect God's love for us. That will never change. But when we refuse to trust Him, when we go our own way, there comes a sense there's something wrong in my life. I'm not the person I should be. I'm not the person I was saved to be. And my relationship with my father has been harmed. And we find ourselves... And again, a prayer from the book of Psalms that I know all too well and have used too often in my own life. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where, when can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night while men say to me all day long, where is your God? Psalm 42, 1 through 3. God, I'm dying of thirst. God, I'm so far away from you and I, and I want to come back and I don't really know how to get there and I don't know what I need to do. I'm drying up, God. And every day I'm filled with a sense of pain and loss. Lack of trusting God brings a disquiet in us that nothing on this earth can fill. Nothing. When we are out of relationship with God, it seems as if we can't even pray and our words get past our lips. Well, folks, like everything else I pointed to, to walk in harmonious relationship with God demands that we learn to trust in him in the journey of life. When I look at them and I see all of this happens, all of this happens because Abraham and Sarah did not trust God. All of it. So when I'm saying we need to learn to trust God in order to live in a harmonious relationship with Him, I'm not talking about earning the favor of God. We can't do that. But it's about us actively seeking a trusting relationship with the God who already loves us. Lord, here I am. 
I'm so far away from you. And I need to come back home. It's opening our hearts to them. Being willing to confess that somewhere, somehow down the line, we just quit trusting. We took our life in our own hands and we've made bad decisions and we've done things that we're not particularly proud of. But as we begin that journey back, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. As we look to Him and ask Him, take my life and make me usable. Take my life and let me know. Take my life. David prays. And isn't it, I don't know if you noticed in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He didn't say rejoice the store of mine. Rejoice, restore the joys of the salvation and the joy that you have that can become mine as I throw myself at your mercy. And when we do that, we can declare with the psalmist in that same psalm, Psalm 42, I'm thirsty, I'm dying, I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm crying my eyes out. It ends in verse 11. Why are you downcast, my soul? (coughs) Why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Our God truly forgives us when we confess our sin before Him. I believe that. Everything within me. He cleanses us and removes the sin from us. But the consequences of that sin are not always erased. We need to realize that when we lose sight of a call to faithfully follow Him, (coughs) we will lead others to an irreverence for the God we serve. We need to understand when we quit trusting we may find ourselves reacting to the world with a harsh and ungodly heart. Instead of loving our enemies, just like the world, we're filled with hate. We need to learn when we quit following God in faith. We hurt our relationship with Him. Not because He's moved, but because we have. I'm going to ask Charmelle if she will come up here and begin softly playing. Not every sermon that I preach has a direct call to come to an altar. Because sometimes that's just not the thrust. Obviously, I I believe the vast majority of folks here know God, love God, and want to serve Him. But today, I've told a few of you, some of you have talked about me stepping on your toes. You get your toes stepped on one Sunday morning. God steps on my toes 
throughout the whole preparation. Folks, I have been exactly what I have been describing. There have been moments in my life my faith toward God has grown cold and it's very easy to go through motions. Sundays come every seven days. And it's easy to to trust in what I've learned and, and how to do things. But folks, there have been times I've got to admit that I've lost sight. And there have been times, yes, my actions in my life through 65 years have brought dishonor to God. There have been times in my life that I embraced hatred and anger. And there have been many times in my life my relationship with God suffered because I wasn't ready to believe He loved me. So everything I've talked about, this isn't theory. This is real life. So there may be someone here today not wanting to, but needing to Come before God and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to see the way back. Help me by strengthening my faith. Help me trust you. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and if any of you would like to come and pray with me, you can. If you want to pray at the front or where you're at, folks, don't walk away from here unchanged.